Okay, so uh, we are just gonna kind of play today. We're not gonna do math. <laughs> We've done enough of that in the last couple days. Uh, unless you want to, if you have questions, this is a really good time for us to review some things because uh, the content today won't be, won't take, uh, well, I c it, well, it's a gas. It can just expand to fill the time we have, but <laughs> it's not relevant for the n this week's homework or anything like that, so. If you want to bolt now, you can. Any questions? Anything? How many people have taken a look at uh, this week's homework already? Uh, Michael, you posted a question about, I think, question 1B. Yeah. And so I put a clarification in the discussion board, but um, the, wording, the wording of question wasn't, isn't as good as it could be. Um, or you could even say it's wrong. If you show me the... Uh, for question 1B, rather than say, what are the new principal polarization states in the perturbed crystal, we'll say, what are the new principal axes? in the perturbed crystal. Okay, and if you want to if you want to see that in writing, you can go to the discussion board where the homework help is posted. Well, what, what do you say the change of width from left to left? Uh, polarization state uh -huh. to axes. Yes, yes it is. The reason, so I was trying to think of why I didn't call it axes in the first place. And uh, you recall the, well, go through the whole explanation, which is kind of pointless, but uh, the, uh, <laughs> with optically active material, the, what we call the principal axes aren't linear axes, but they're circular directions. Um, that said, you don't have optical activity until you define a direction of propagation. And this particular problem does not involve that, so you move point, call it principal axes, and I think everything is fine. Okay, Nicole. No, no. So that could be a general uh, perturbation that could come from a, a variety of sources. And in fact, this one looks almost identical to the problem we did in class. Uh, one thing you'll note that's different is if delta is a real function, then the perturbation we had in class was imaginary and this is a real perturbation. Okay, there's no reason that delta couldn't represent an imaginary value, but um, so it's a little different in that sense. Okay, um, we're going to talk about an application of Faraday rotators, which is a device that uses optical activity, or more appropriately, Faraday rotation, uh, to achieve some, some goal in an optical experiment. A number of times throughout the semester, we'll spend a, a lecture talking about applications of devices. Um, most of the time, it'll be applications to LIGO, which is the uh, experiment that I work on. It's the laser interferometric gravitational wave observatory. This is a picture of one of the two observatories. That's in Hanford, Washington. There's another one in Livingston, Louisiana. They're identical um, in size and scale. These arms are four kilometers long. They house the world's largest ultra vacuum system. It's uh, 
one meter diameter vacuum tanks running full four kilometers in both directions. And why would you want such a big interferometer um, or observatory? Inside of those vacuum systems is a Michelson interferometer, or a, a highly modified version of a Mike Michelson interferometer. And you might guess from the name, it's being used to look for gravitational waves. Okay, so talk a little bit about the theory here, what gravitational waves are, um, how a Michelson interferometer can detect them, and uh, that'll be sort of general background that's relevant for every time we talk about applications in LIGO, and then we'll talk about the Faraday isolators. Okay, so modern theory of gravity is not the one that you learn in, in physics 50. It's not the one you probably learn in physics in 105. Um, Newton's theory of gravity works pretty well, and for any sort of laboratory scale experiment that you do, it would work just fine. There's one big problem with this, particularly when you look at at uh, cosmic scales. Anyone have any sense of what could be very wrong with that? There's no time dependence. So it requires, uh, there you go. <laughs> Instantaneous action at a distance, right? So if there's two masses, they have to attract. If one of the masses just goes away, um, that force that is felt by the other mass has to instantaneously disappear, according to this. And so that violates Einstein's postulate that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, including information. So Einstein, rather than just point out flaws in other people's theories, came up with his own that answered, that addressed these issues. Um, his theory of gravitation is, is general relativity. Right? And uh, that's a whole class unto itself, but one of the very compact formulas of general relativity that's useful for understanding how sort of gravity works is is this expression right here, which relates the uh, strain tensor to the stress energy tensor. Um, there's this constant that relates them. The strain tensor describes how space-time is warped by mass or energy that's placed in it, and the stress energy tensor tells us about the mass and the energy that's in the space-time. And in a minute, I'll show you uh, a picture of how that turns into gravity. But for now, um, let's just. So is G bar the same as G? Is G bar is different? Yes, G bar is a tensor. G is the universal gravitational constant. Yep. So um, if this is a stress equals a constant times a strain, uh, that looks like the Hooke's law, basically Hooke's law in, uh, what would you call it, uh, microscopic form. So the stress is to force, the strain is to displacement, force is a constant times the displacement. And what's interesting here, if you just evaluate this constant in MKS units, it works out to 10 to the 43. Okay, and so even without knowing anything about the units of the stress or the strain, um, that's a large number by almost any standard. Um, and what it tells us is that this spring constant, essentially, which is the spring constant for space-time. It's the stiffness of space-time. It's very stiff. Space-time is stiff. It doesn't easily deform. Uh, Einstein's general relativity is not easily observed, or it's not, um, it doesn't differ from Newton's theory in sort of 
laboratory scale experiments because space is so stiff that this effect of space being warped by the mass and energy in it is essentially uh, not easily observed because of the stiffness. Okay, so um, how does that curvature then manifest itself as what we see as gravity? Easiest way to understand it is to imagine uh, an analogy which would be like a bed sheet or a bed or a rubber membrane, something that can deform when you put a mass on it. So take like a bowling ball, put it on the center of the bed, it's going to deform it. And now you have a curved surface that represents our curved space-time, curved by the presence of the mass, the mass or the energy. And now take like a ping-pong ball or something and roll it along the bed. It would have rolled in a straight line if the bed were flat and there were no uh, bowling ball in the middle. But in the presence of this uh, curvature, it will follow a geodesic and just uh, produce some sort of curved trajectory that may be orbital or, or maybe not. But um, that curved path is due to what we call gravity. And that's completely analogous to the way that this uh, strain in space-time affects the path of objects and uh, causes gravity through Einstein's theory. Okay, <coughs> so you can imagine, for instance, space-time being warped by the presence of some massive objects. Maybe those are neutron stars. Stars tend to exist uh, with some probability in binary systems, so there are also new neutron star binary systems. As they orbit around each other, the uh, curvature of the space-time that they produce causes ripples. Those ripples propagate outwards to carry away energy. As they lose energy, their orbital period decreases. That causes them to spiral in. That increases the size of those ripples, those are the gravitational waves that we're interested in detecting. You don't get them in a static case, but you get them when you have very large uh, stress energy or yeah, stress energy concentrations um, very near each other, moving very fast. So these waves are propagating outwards. They manifest themselves as a quadrupolar strain field in space. Um, so the fabric of space that makes up everything is getting stretched and compressed. Gets, you can't really see the blue arrows very clearly, um, but they get, they get stressed, stretched and compressed in a uh, quadrupolar pattern, which looks like it would have the effect on a ring of uh, points where space will get compressed in one dimension while it's simultaneously stretched out in the other. So a circular ring would get uh, distorted into an ellipse. And it's a if we have this traveling wave going by, it would be an oscillation in the transverse direction. So wave propagating into the board causes space and time to get distorted like that. Kay. So you may, at this point, start to see where an interferometer could be a useful tool in measuring such a strain. Here's a picture of our binary star system, uh, gravitational wave propagating away from it, there's that transverse quadrupolar strain field. And now an L-shaped interferometer is very sensitive at measuring the uh, relative displacement along two orthogonal directions. And so we'll just pick two masses in that, uh, or two points on that circle, and we'll measure the distance to those points from a beam splitter, and compare the distance in the two directions. 
this particular diagram shows a, a Saniac interferometer, not a Michelson interferometer. Um, my thesis work was on Saniac interferometer, and these slides are from my thesis. So, so that's what's inside of the facility in Hanford and in Livingston, Louisiana. So what, what's actually in there looks a little more like this. Um, it's a little more complicated than a regular Michelson interferometer, but the principle is the same. A laser beam is split by a beam splitter. Some of it goes and reflects off of a far mirror here. Some of it reflects off of this far mirror. The two returning beams interfere either constructively or destructively or somewhere in between, depending on the relative phase shift they encounter in the two arms. If the position of the end mirrors changes, that manifests itself as a change in the output power at the soda detector. Uh, the rest of this I'll just mention briefly um, without too much explanation. These mirrors here essentially fold the light inside the arms to increase the effective arm length. Uh, they're actually near mirrors of a resonant Fabry-Pro cavity. The output towards the photo detector is, uh, is kept at a dark fringe. So there's destructive interference here in the absence of any gravitational wave displacement from the arm. And as a result, that means all the power is going back towards the laser and is not really detected or, or used. It goes through the interferometer, it comes out, and without a gravitational wave to couple it to the detector, it just goes back there and we get dumped into some, <coughs> some uh, beam dump. So that is returned by putting a mirror here, and essentially the entire interferometer acts like a mirror. Light goes in, light comes back out. So it's like a compound mirror. This mirror here forms one mirror, the interferometer forms the other of a resonant cavity. There's a resonant enhancement of the power at the beam splitter, which is important. In order to get good sensitivity, you need high power. So there's losses that limit how much it will build up. So losses in the test masses, losses in the um, due to the alignment of the beam splitter. So the so yeah, and its direction changes as the Earth rotates. So what you see is a signal whose amplitude is modulated with the orbital period of the Earth, and then also with the the uh, yearly yearly period. You can use that information to extract a direction in the sky um, from a single interferometer. Or if you have a burst event that only is short duration where you can't use that phase information, you need uh, an array of detectors in order to triangulate in the sky where the, the object came from. And that's why there's more than one detector. Um, okay, so We'll talk a little bit about how all the different things that we study in this class affect this experiment. Um, first is in order to model the interferometer, it's a fairly complex system. Right? So on this end, we have a Fabry-Pro cavity. We can treat that like a mirror um, since light reflects off of this. Um, with a reflectivity that depends on the length of the cavity. And you can model all that using phaser analysis. Right, so we've done some phaser analysis. Um, 
Likewise, you can treat this beam splitter as being a mirror. Light goes through it and then comes back. Light reflects off of it and then comes back. And just like a mirror, light hits it and comes back. The fact that it sees all this other stuff along the way um, causes its reflectivity to be a function of wavelength and, and any uh, change in position of the test masses. And you can account for all that using phaser analysis. Okay. Uh, we're not going to spend any time working out the analysis of this interferometer in class, though. <coughs> Inside of the laser that drives this thing, there's a number of elements that we'll be talking about. Um, the laser is a master oscillator power amplifier. So there's a relatively low power single frequency laser that gets amplified. It gets double passed through this amplifier. Um, you can see right here there's a Faraday rotator. The purpose of that rotator is so that when the light gets double passed, it can be separated from the, the beam that was going in. Okay. So the way that works is the, the beam coming this way has one polarization. It goes through the Faraday rotator, passes through the amplifier. When it comes back, its polarization gets rotated by 90 degrees. And so instead of passing through this polarizer, it gets rejected. And you can then send it on its way to the experiment. Um, there's also a number of half-wave plates in this system. Half-wave plates are just crystals, light going through crystals. Um, it has, as you saw from this last homework, two indices of refraction. The crystal is cut the right length. You can get the phase delay between the two polarization states to be half-wave. Um, So some of the basic ideas of propagation come into play in the laser. The laser itself is a neodymium YAG lab. Um, and the wave is basically guided by total internal reflection inside of that through a zigzag path. So when we talk about dielectric waveguides, um, when and if we get a chance to talk about laser diodes, those are all things that will factor into the operation of this laser head. So we have laser diodes externally that deliver pump power via these fibers. And this whole thing is about the size of this remote. It's pretty, pretty small. Produces 10 watts of output power. Um, with all the uh, recycling, the buildup of power, resonant buildup of power inside the arms, uh, there's about 100 kilowatts of power at the beam splitter. That laser is <coughs> here. The design of the laser is basically optimized for low amplitude and frequency noise. So it's considered a very uh, stable system. It's essentially the clock that's used with the laser wavelength. It's the clock or the meter stick that's measuring the distance to those arms. So you need as little noise or uncertainty in your measuring device in order to make precise measurement of those distances. Well, turns out in its free running state, even though it's optimized for uh, low frequency noise, uh, it's still several orders of magnitude too noisy to reach the sensitivity limit necessary in this experiment. The arms, however, have resonant cavities in them that are four kilometers long. Each arm has a mirror at the end that's suspended from a very complex multi-stage suspension system. Um, a C 
series of pendula and masses, as well as springs and masses, as well as active isolation systems that measure motion of the ground and then feed forward to actuators to compensate for that. All of this makes those mirrors the quietest place on Earth in the acoustic range. So there's very little motion of those mirrors. They're very far apart. The relative length of those cavities is very, very uh, fixed in the audio frequency range. So if the, the cavities themselves are used as a frequency reference, and essentially the number of wavelengths that fit in that cavity is measured, and then if it falls off resonance, it's more likely due to the laser frequency changing than it is the cavity moving. And so if it falls off resonance, that generates a signal that's fed back to the laser and changes the frequency. It's not actually fed back to the laser, it's fed back to an electro-optic modulator. Okay, so electro-optic modulator, it's electro-optic, we'll talk about that uh, in the next I guess, two chapters from now, chapter, 19, uh, it's chapter 20 in our textbook. There's also an acousto-optic modulator that's used for shifting the frequency to lock it into a reference cavity. Um, that also is used for uh, frequency stabilization of the laser. So there's all these different devices that we're going to be talking about that come into play in this one experiment. Wait, so you said that if it falls off resonance, uh, the signal loops back to compensate for it. But what if a gravitational wave may have fallen off resonance? Yeah. Um, there's <coughs> two cavities. If there were only a single cavity, there'd be no way to differentiate. But because there's two, what you can do is you can combine the signals. You can take the average signal from the two and feed that back. And the wavelength is the same in both arms. Gravitational wave is at least if the polarization of the gravitational wave is optimally aligned to the interferometer. Gravitational wave signal is differential. It stretches one arm when it compresses the other. The signals are in opposite directions. So when you average them, they cancel out. Right, so you measure the common mode signal and the differential mode signal. The common mode you feed back to the laser, the differential you read out is your signal. <laughs> yes. Actually, you don't. What you do, well, yes, you do if it's turns out to be something you observe, but in practice, you don't just allow the differential mode to produce a signal in your detector and then read that out. The reason you don't is because with 100 kilowatts of power at the beam splitter, um, if one mirror moves by a quarter wavelength, you dump the 100 kilowatts of power and you basically melted everything, your beam splitter and everything. So you can't allow the arms to just do their thing and measure how much power comes out. So what you do is you also feed back that differential signal so that it's always at a dark fringe. That's why it's at a dark fringe. Any, any reasonable fraction of 100 kilowatts is enough to melt your detector. Um, so you just keep it at a dark fringe. The strength of the signal it takes to feed it back is proportional to the strength of the signal you would see if you weren't controlling it. So you can read out the electrical feedback signal. Um, much the same way that you can, for example, keep track of how long your furnace is on to tell you how cold out it is out. Right? Even though the temperature of your house shouldn't change, um, the feedback signal driving the furnace uh, increases when you have greater need for control. Okay, so uh, we'll look at the input optics today. Um, particularly the Faraday, rota the Faraday rotator um, here. 
It has some fairly demanding requirements, um, certainly enough so that you can't just buy a commercially available Faraday rotator. So we'll look at the engineering and the design and into a particular model that's being used. There's also a number of electro-optic modulators. These are commercially purchased. Those are new focus modulators. They're used to frequency modulate the input light. Um, and I believe later on, depending on uh, how the timing goes, we may get a chance to talk about the, <coughs> the use of frequency modulation in control systems as applied to LIGO. Uh, the photo detectors are also custom-made to handle the potential high power, um, the need for very high quantum efficiency to reduce the amount of uh, background noise. The mirrors are also custom-designed. These are uh, 10 kilogram mirrors here. They'll go up to 40 kilograms in the next, the next version of LIGO or the next upgrade. Um, they're made out of single, well, very high quality fused silica. Um, reason for that is to minimize thermal motion of the mirrors. We won't have a chance to discuss why that is the case, but the coatings on them also need to be very high reflectivity uh, and very low loss, both of those things. The low loss is particularly important because if you have 100 kilowatts of power hitting this coating and you have like a speck of dust or any sort of um, non-uniform absorption there, you get a hot spot. You get a hot spot, you get a stretching of that location, thermal expansion, and that changes the shape of the mirror. And a four kilometer long cavity, very small change in the shape of the mirror can cause that cavity to go unstable. Um, and so I think we will get a chance to talk when we talk about um, block modes and layered materials. We can talk about the design of those coatings. And it's really kind of neat. There's genetic algorithms that are used to come up with sort of non-standard designs that aren't periodic structures like you'd find in a like off-the-shelf uh, component. Where's the reflection, majority reflection the front side or the back side? Front side. But then on the back, Well, so what's considered the front side is the reflecting side, sort of by definition. So if you have a cavity like this, um, you get resonant buildup inside the cavity. So you want as little physical material inside there because that's just going to introduce loss. So you want the re reflecting side to be on the inside of that cavity. In order to get light in, you end up going through the material. In order to get light out, but the amount that goes in and out is only a fraction of what's inside due to the, the resonant buildup there. Can you get more Um, the reason you want it big is to make it massive. Sure. That sure. gives it more inertia, makes it uh, more stable. Um, it also makes it, it's not so much the stability due to being driven by uh, seismic motion. It's more the fact that um, at the power levels we're using, the dominant motion of the mirror is caused by the photon noise pushing on the mirror. So. The more massive it is, the smaller an effect that is. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's look at the schematic of the input optics. Um, essentially, over here is the laser. 
and by laser, it's actually a whole system of things that um, for our purposes, we'll just call a laser giving us an output beam. And over here is uh, the interferometer. So in between those two things, there's modulators. We actually saw a picture of those that put RF sidebands on the light or produce phase modulation of the light. Mode matching telescopes, lenses to get the proper shape of the beam. Power control, so in feedback to stabilize the power, you can have some sort of amplitude modulator here that you feed back to to maintain the power. Active jitter suppression, essentially what that is is a pair of mirrors that are uh, on galvos that can move around to keep the beam on a target four kilometers away. Um, so you can see those galvos right there. And then a long triangular ring cavity. And this we call a mode cleaner. Essentially what it is, is it's a, uh, a low-pass filter. It's an optical low-pass filter. It's a cavity. Light comes in, it resonates in here. And when it leaves the cavity, you get this uh, filtering effect due to the long storage time of the cavity. And it, does, it reduces the uh, amplitude and frequency noise. It also reduces the, um, or eliminates essentially, any higher order spatial modes on the light. So any, any junk in the transverse profile of the beam means that there's multiple Hermit Gaussian modes to the beam. Only one mode can be resonant at a time in this cavity. And so if it's, if it's tuned here so that the length causes the uh, zero, zero mode to be resonant, that's what will come through. Everything else gets dumped off. Um, and there's the Faraday isolator. So the Faraday isolator is here because it needs to keep the high power from the interferometer from coming back and getting to any of the uh, the actual reason it can't come back is that if it's comes back and it circulates in this cavity, the light can scatter into the backwards direction, come out on these sensing and control uh, detectors, and interfere with the length sensing and control of that mode cleaner. But uh, for our purposes, we can just say the light's not allowed back past that point. Um, so the problem is, we'd like to have all of the stuff that the light goes through on this side of the mode cleaner. The mode cleaner is a mode cleaner. It's there to scrape off all the crap that's on the beam that gets put on by all this stuff the beam has to go through. Right? So you really don't want anything past that. And anything you put past that has to be uh, manufactured and designed in, uh, much more carefully to minimize uh, the modal degeneration of the beam quality as it goes through the, the device. Okay, so let's look at the uh, LIGO design document for the Faraday isolator. Here are some of the parameters that I pulled out of this. Needs to be able to handle up to 180 watts of CW power. So that's, um, that's pretty high power given the other constraints. So in industry, if you're machining them, uh, etching your name on something, you might have 10 kilowatt laser or something like that. Um, 
but those don't have to meet anything near these, these other requirements. Um, forward transmission, 96%. Okay, backwards, it's labeled as backwards transmission at 80%. It's really not transmission, it's 80% uh, of the light that goes back, you need to be able to recover and do stuff with. It doesn't actually go through the modulator, it gets rejected by the last polarizer, but it needs to come out and be accessible for the experiment. Okay, so P input and output polarization. The key there is that the input and output have to be the same polarization. At least 38 dB of power isolation. So if you send the light through, put a mirror and have it come back, um, if 40 dB would be like 10,000 times, so one ten thousandth of the power that goes through in one direction should come back through in the other direction. Um, about 20 dB is what you can get with a cheap off-the-shelf something. 30 dB is what you can get with a expensive off-the-shelf something. Okay, so that's beyond the requirements of, of what's readily available commercially. Uh, less than 5% coupling out of the TEM00 mode. So if you put a nice high-quality beam in, you need most of the power to stay in that, that high-quality mode. And less than 100 microradians of thermal beam steering. So as this heats up, you can't have it causing the beam to drift around. Okay, so with those requirements in mind, let's look at some of the materials that are commonly used for, or Say it again. Let's look at some common materials and their Verde constants, which would be what would govern how well they would perform as a Faraday rotator. So the Verde constant is the constant that tells us how much Faraday rotation you get in the material. It depends on the amount of external magnetic field. This is measured in Gauss and, of course, in the length of the interaction. Okay, so typical materials. All you need to take from this, these are typical materials, glass, water, have a Verde constant that's on the order of 10 to the minus 5. What materials make good Faraday rotators? Well, the Faraday rotation is caused by a magnetic effect. Um, the materials that are most paramagnetic, the ones that have the most unpaired electrons in their valence bands, are the ones that are going to exhibit the strongest magnetic effects. And terbium, or really any of the elements in this column here, um, or in the middle of, of this part of the periodic table, are going to have the most number of unpaired electrons and will have largest Verde, Verde constant. Okay, so terbium is commonly used in Faraday rotators. So one thing you can do is you can take terbium and you can dope it into glass. You just melt, melt your glass, put terbium in there, and uh, have a terbium glass. Another thing you can do is you can uh, create a crystal that has terbium in it. Terbium gallium garnet is a crystal that's, that's used in the LIGO modulators. So if we look at properties of this crystal, a couple things that are noteworthy. Uh, the thermal conductivity is an order of magnitude higher than the glass. So that's due to the fact that it's a crystal lattice uh, 
It has a more efficient thermal conduction. That's a common property of crystals. Why might that be beneficial? Any thoughts? Well, yes and no. It's not so much the average temperature that matters, but remember what I was saying with the mirrors, why it was important not to have localized hotspots? So if there is a localized absorption, yeah, having a high thermal conductivity allows that heat to flow out and uh, minimize the amount of inhomogeneity in the uh, properties of the crystal, the thermal dependent properties. The birefringence is small, which might seem like a good thing. Uh, we'll see a little bit later that it actually has some some disadvantages. There's some reasons why you might want a high birefringence. The Verde constant is about twice that of terbium-doped glasses. So it's got better thermal conductivity, higher Verde constant. So those are some of the reasons that this was chosen. Now, if we look at a typical Faraday isolator, how many people have a Faraday isolator, Faraday rotator in a lab? Okay. I looked downstairs to see if there was one that wasn't being used that I could bring in. Um, I couldn't find one. There's a picture. Um, you can get them various sizes, but um, you know, something the size of a softball is not uncommon. They're kind of interesting because most of that is a magnet, uh, a rare earth high field magnet. In pulsed laser systems, you can have electromagnetics, electromagnets that fire in synchroni synchronization with the pulses. Um, but it's a very strong magnet, and so if you're working on an optics table that has a Faraday rotator on it, and you lean in and you're wearing a belt with a metal buckle, you'll probably get stuck to it. If you have a screwdriver in your hand and you get within a foot of it, you're going to end up with a screwdriver on the, on the isolator. And if you ever try to take it apart, you'll never get it back together. Um, because you have to have plastic tools. You can't do it with, with metal tools or metal screws. So they're really not designed to be used as service tools. So this is what's inside of it, but uh, the only reason I really know that is because a colleague of mine once took it apart. <laughs> Spent quite some time getting everyone else trying to, to try to put it back together. He never succeeded. Okay, so um, you can buy these as rotators or as isolators. Uh, in the center, you have the same thing. You have a permanent magnet surrounding some sort of magneto-optic material. Um, that would be a rotator. So in this material, uh, in the presence of this external magnetic field that's oriented along the direction of propagation, you get rotation in one direction. And when the light propagates in another direction, you get more rotation in the same, in the same uh, sense. If you add polarizers to either side, then you can arrange for light going through in one direction to be fully passed and light going through in the other direction to be fully blocked, and that's an isolator. Okay, so um, typical design looks like this. You have an input polarizer that just ensures that even if the laser isn't its proper polarization, um, it ensures whatever gets through here will get rotated by the proper amount to get through here. Going through the crystal, it gets uh, Polarization gets rotated. Out here you have a quartz rotator. That's just an optically active material that rotates it some more, such that 
the output polarization aligns to the desired output state. Okay? If you didn't have that, then you would need this polarizer and that polarizer to be 45 degrees offset in order to have this a functional Faraday isolator. And if you saw for the requirements in the LIGO one, it was required that the input and output polarization be the same. That's generally a desired trait, so it's a black box, you stick it in, and it doesn't change what the light is doing going through the system. So that's the purpose of this quartz rotator. When the light goes back, right, this output polarizer, which should do nothing to the input beam, there should be no light uh, blocked by this output polarizer. Anything that can make it through here, this should be designed such that it can get through here. But when the light comes back, um, if it's just reflected from a mirror, it should be the same polarization that transmits through here and should be able to go back. Um, and then should be blocked by this polarizer. So why would you need this? If it doesn't affect the input, and doesn't affect the retroreflected beam. Okay, if there's something out here that changes the polarization state, say a polarizer at some arbitrary angle, the light coming back isn't going to necessarily have the same polarization that it was sent in with. So this just ensures that it's the proper polarization to get blocked then when it gets to there. Um, this magneto-optic crystal or glass is usually on some sort of mount that can be moved in and out of the permanent magnet. That changes the net amount of Faraday rotation that you get. Obviously, the more this crystal is inside the magnet, the more rotation you're going to get. Um, in an electro or in an um, electromagnetic configuration where you've got a coil being driven by some voltage, you could just adjust the voltage to change the amount of rotation. The reason you want to do that is because you get different amounts of rotation at different wavelengths. So if you have this device and you want to operate it at some other wavelength than it was originally designed for, this needs to be adjusted. That's usually something that's done at the factory. So it's more like uh, the company that makes this has this type of mount and they, they use the same stage and adjust it for whatever uh, wavelength the customer wants. Okay, now, one issue in really any material that light goes through is the potential for thermal lensing. This is particularly a problem when you have high power. So thermal lensing comes from the fact that uh, laser beams typically are uh, Gaussian in profile. They have some tails. Most of the power is concentrated in the center. And therefore, any absorption, even uniform absorption in the material, is going to heat up the center more than the edges. Right, so you get some temperature profile that is greatest at the center. Um, and that's not quite proportional to, but sort of uh, directly related to this Gaussian power profile in the material. That can create all sorts of problems. Thermal lensing is where that change in temperature changes the index of refraction. Index of refraction is a function of temperature. What happens if your index of refraction changes across the profile of your material, your window? Well, it's a radially symmetric change in beam shape. A device that changes the beam shape we call a lens. So this is a lens. There's even lenses called gradient index lenses that are exactly this. So this is a GRIN lens, a gradient index lens. Um, it'll cause a plane wave to get focused. 
um, most materials would focus. Most would produce a positive lens in the presence of, of uh, thermal lensing. <coughs> Okay, so you're right. A, a plane, a, a Gaussian beam that is collimated, let me say it that way, would get focused. If you had a plane wave, you wouldn't have this right. this so profile. So the issue here has nothing, at this point, this has nothing to do with the wavelength depen dependence of anything. Oh. So you said the index of refraction changes. Now it looks like the wavelength. The index of refraction is a function of wavelength. It's also a function of temperature. So on this slide, I was saying you can vary the amount of rotation you get by moving this crystal in and out. That's to compensate for the dnd lambda. If you use a different wave, if you want to design this for a different wavelength, you can just move that crystal in or out to get the proper amount of rotation. On this slide, I'm talking about uh, dnDt. The index changes as a function of temperature. When you have a non-uniform temperature profile, then you have essentially a lens. And of course, not just a lens, it's a temperature-dependent lens. So it's a different lens when it's your laser's on than when it's off, and, right? So you don't want that. Um, the other issue that you get is due to this uh, essentially parabolic temperature distribution across the center of the beam, you get a strain in the material due to the thermal expansion. Okay, so if you have a, a cylinder, the thermal expansion is going to cause a bump on the center of the cylinder. So that also is a form of lens different than the Grin lens that we call a thermoelastic lens. Um, but that's, that's the strain that's pushing the material out in that direction. There's also a radial strain. So you can see that strain field here. The strain is greatest where the uh, gradient of the temperature profile is the largest. So if the temperature profile is flat, you're not going to get the strain. So at the top or at the edges, you get very little strain. And in between, you get the most, where the temperature is changing most rapidly. OK, so in chapter 19, we'll talk about the photoelastic effect, which says that strain changes the index of refraction. And you might be able to guess that because strain can be in different directions, it can change the index of refraction for light polarized in different directions. So if this material was an originally an isotropic material, and we saw for TGG, the birefringence is small. You can essentially treat it as isotropic. If you introduce a strain in one direction, think of a, a cubic crystal lattice and stretching it in one direction. That is the type of crystal lattice that we said was associated with the uniaxial crystal. So essentially what this is, is locally at any point, the material is going to look like a uniaxial crystal with its optical axis along the direction of the strain. And so let's say you have light that's polarized vertically going through this. Um, in this region up here, 
it's along one of the principal axes of the crystal. And in this region over here, it's also along one of the principal axes. But up here, sort of in the 45 degree area, the polarization is a linear combination of two different axes. And it's going to get, they're going to, those two polarization states are going to propagate at different speeds. And you get polarization rotation. Not because of the Faraday effect, but because of this effect. And so since this is between cross polarizers, that leads to light leaking out. So this is what you'd see. This is what the extinction pattern would be. Or if you looked at light that's supposed to be blocked by your isolator, you'd likely see something like this if you put in a, a nice smooth Gaussian beam. The amount of extinction is, is spatially dependent. And it largely comes from this, uh, this radial strain introduced by the thermal absorption. Okay, so those are some of the problems. Let's look at how the LIGO design overcomes some of these. Um, first issue is the lensing in the material. So the uh, DNDT of the material produces a positive lens. One way to compensate for that is with a chunk of material that has the opposite sign of DNDT. So when this material outside gets heated, it produces a negative lens. This material produces a positive lens. If you choose the uh, value of DNDT and the length of the materials appropriately, you can get those effects to uh, cancel out to first order. Um, the next issue was the uh, depolarization. We call it thermal depolarization that we talked about in the last slide, where the light at the plus and minus 45 degree areas get uh, their polarization changed. And the way this design deals with that is the Faraday active material is split in two. And in between, there's a wave plate that rotates the light by 45 degrees. And this is actually a optically active material that rotates the light by 45 degrees. And what it does is it causes light that's um, sort of depolarized in this crystal to get fixed in this crystal, if you like. So the light that was, uh, so all of the light gets rotated by 22 and a half degrees at this point, the polarization state. So if we go in with a vertical polarization state through this crystal, it's at 22 and a half degrees through that crystal. So if it's at any point, if it's along one of the optical axes uh, locally in this crystal, it's not in that one and vice versa. So the entire beam gets the same amount of net polarization rotation. If you have that, then you can compensate for it by just increasing or decreasing the amount of Faraday rotation um, for the power level that you're anticipating using. So you end up with a point design. It operates optimally at a particular power, um, but it's, it operate, operates uniformly across the entire spatial profile. There's the design. And there's the device. You can get a sense, there's a picture, a piece of paper in the background. You can get a sense of the size of that. It's kind of the size of a football. Most of that is the magnets. And the larger the aperture here, the larger the, mag the size of the magnets necessary to get the, uh, the field in that aperture. So if you have a uh, 
a Faraday isolator that's for uh, integration into a fiber optics experiment. It can be no bigger than a pencil. Um, but once you go to sort of one inch apertures, then you need sort of one foot diameter magnets. Well, it varies, but at the beam splitter, it's uh, it's one the Gaussian width is two and a half, uh, or the Gaussian radius is two and a half centimeters. The the diameter is two inches. Um, at the far mirrors, it's about twice that. Okay, so um, let's look at some performance measurements. Here's the isolation ratio. Remember it needed to have, I think, 38 dB of isolation, greater than that. So anything above that line is acceptable. Um, and this is the initial isolation measured for three different powers. Right, so we said that uh, this was going to be a point design that operates differently at different power levels. So there's the isolation at the three power levels, all of those three power levels meet the isolation criteria until you pump out the air in the vacuum system. And when you do that, all three of them fail once they get to high vacuum. Okay, so what's going on? Um, mostly it's the beams moving around. When you pump out the air, then you get uh, essentially beam steering effects due to uh, just due to things moving essentially what's that no 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 when, once the air is gone it's at a different level really what what it, the problem here is really that the alignment of the beam changed okay and we can see that because here what's done is a motorized wave plate is used to change the alignment of the beam it's actually not the mechanical pointing, but the, uh, the um, polarization angle of the input beam is adjusted and the isolation ratio is restored above the, the necessary limit. So that's just a general lesson. If you're doing an experiment, if you can avoid it, don't do it in vacuum. <laughs> because once you get everything working, you pump it out and it no longer works. And there's no way to do any, I mean, unless you have a lot of remote actuators in your system, the only way to fix it is to let the air back in and try to fix it. It takes a lot longer. Okay, so this shows the same thing over a longer period of time. Um, here was the isolation going down, and then it was fixed via this uh, actuator that adjusted the input polarization state. It actually overcompensated, and over time the isolation drifted up and improved because this overcompensated for the whatever the, the polarization rotation error there was. Okay, so that issue was addressed. The uh, extinction ratio is, is uh, acceptable in vacuum. Another measurement is the polarization, uh, the depolarization as a function of the power. So as you turn up the power, you expect more of this, this thermal depolarization, more light in these lobes 
leaking through. And if you do that for a conventional Faraday isolator, which is the data plotted along line A, as you increase the amount of power going through the isolator, you increase the amount of light that uh, does not get properly rejected, the amount of depolarized light. And you can see what that, uh, that dark field looks like. This is supposed to be fully extinct for light double passing the, the isolator. And you can see those lobes, and those match what we said we would expect for thermal depolarization. Um, this effect of thermal depolarization is relevant here in isolator design, but it's also a big issue in high-power laser rods. So laser rods have the same sort of radial symmetry, um, have all the same sort of issues with thermal depolarization. So the LIGO design is design C, and you can see a couple things here. The, uh, as the power increases, you get an increase in the, the depolarization, but the amount of depolarization is always uh, two orders of magnitude less than the conventional design. And you can see that the, uh, this lobe structure is not present. So that particular spatial effect has been, been eliminated. There's just residual effects here that might be due to non-uniform absorption in the material, um, or... Is that looking a little more like this? Well, yeah, you can never trust the uh, intensity of, a, of an image. These aren't normalized. Um, you can look over here to measure. So this is the depolarization. Higher value means more junk getting through. Well, those are just fits to how it's uh, the asymptotic approach. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't know what those are. I know very little about this data. I just dug it out of a paper and stuck it in. And, um, I said asymptotic fits because that's what they look like to me, and then I'm noticing that this line is not a line, but it's rolling over. Um, although it's probably rolling over because the depolarization can never get greater than 100% which would be zero on this log-log plot. So these are probably uh, functions that they're approaching asymptotically that aren't, aren't lines, but are linear uh, far from the peaks. Okay, so something pretty simple, like a Faraday rotator. Um, there's still a lot of optical engineering that go into it when the, the demands for the application are, are strict enough. If you want to learn more, uh, the LIGO website uh, has a lot of information about LIGO, and these are the uh, papers that I was referencing that had all the data and the design information in it. Any questions? All right, we get out of here a little bit early today then.